So there's an old story about a blind man in a village who would carry around a lantern at night. Now you might be thinking, what use does a blind man have for a lantern? Well, there were some travelers coming upon this man, passing through the village, and they, they saw this and they thought, how foolish, what, how silly is that, that this blind man would carry a lantern? And they were kind of having some fun with it until one of them uh, worked up the courage to ask this blind man, what business do you have carrying around a lit lantern as a blind man? The blind man replied, the lantern is not for me, it's for you, so that you will see me and not bump into me in the night. This is a classic example of how a matter of perspective changes everything, right? How we see and interpret things in life. And it's no secret that as Christians, uh, we will experience a degree of suffering in this life and even persecution. But with the right perspective, the trials of life will not defeat us. In fact, with the right perspective, we'll even thrive in the midst of them. And I love how Brandon just shared how some trials in your life. I loved how you thanked God for those trials because they helped you to be the man you are today and to grow in your faith, right? So it's about, it's about perspective. Jesus had just told uh, his disciples that this world will hate them and even try to kill them. And so here at the end of Jesus' farewell discourse, he gives his disciples some perspective that will bring joy in the midst of their trials. And this same perspective will bring us joy as well. And so let's go to the Word of God now and look for this. Please turn with me to John chapter 16. We're going to be in verses 16 to 33. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 1072. Once you're there, I invite you to please stand with me if you're able out of reverence for God's Word and follow along with me as I read. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? And, and why, not, why do not uh, we know what he is talking about? Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has brought, been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. 
the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, may the light of your word shine on our hearts this morning to show us more of Jesus, that we would have his peace in this troubled world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So Jesus, here at the end of the farewell discourse, is only hours away from his arrest, his torture, and his crucifixion. And he knows that these events will rock the lives of his disciples here. It'll bring tremendous grief and sorrow to their souls. This is because the disciples still, at this point, have no category in their minds for a crucified Messiah. So in verse 16, he tells them, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me. But of course, this causes confusion among the disciples. And Jesus, as only he can do, perceives this and responds to their confusion. But notice this. This is interesting. He doesn't directly answer their immediate question. But instead, he replies to the needs of their hearts rather than to the questions of their minds. Isn't it fascinating how Jesus does that? He gives us what we need, not necessarily what we're wanting or asking for, uh, but he gives us what we need. And he knows our needs better than we do. And this is just one example of that. So he gives them a, a victorious perspective that will bring them great joy, even in the midst of these severe trials that they're about to face. And this is the joy that we see in Acts 5, when after being arrested and beaten, the apostles are released and they leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And this is an astounding thing because today so many struggle to find joy in in this life of relative comfort and ease. We often ride this emotional roller coaster driven by our circumstances that has these wild ups and downs from one day to the next. But facing torture and prison and death, how is it that the disciples experience such incredible joy? How can we have that joy? I want to show you in our text this morning five ways that Jesus' victory brings us lasting joy as we live out and as we share the gospel. 
So the first thing is transformed by joy, and we see this in verse 20, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. First, understand that Jesus is talking about his impending death and his victorious resurrection. And we know this because the Greek word here translated weep is used five times in John. And every single one of those times, it's in the context of death. So it's a word that John uses to describe uh, the weeping associated with the death of a loved one. The world will rejoice in this moment, thinking that they've won victory over Jesus. And his disciples will weep. Notice that sorrow is not replaced by joy. It's turned into joy. It's transformed. And this is the point that Jesus makes when when he gives the analogy of childbirth here. By the way, I did not plan to to preach this because it's Mother's Day. It's just where we're at in John. Isn't God good like that? I love that. He's explaining uh, that the very thing that caused such pain and agony and childbearing, and I know a thing or two about that. I've seen six out of my seven children born. I missed one. Uh, she couldn't wait. She came in the ambulance. But uh, anyway, so I've, I've, seen, I've seen childbirth. I, I, I know it's pain and agony. Uh, I don't know by experience, thankfully. Uh, but childbearing is... Is, is the very thing that generates such unfathomable joy when that baby is in the arms of their mother. And so too, the cross. The cross, this instrument of Roman torture and death, is the very source of their sorrow and it would be transformed into the very source of our joy. Just think about how the cross has been the subject of such beautiful art throughout church history. It's something that we sing songs about. That's crazy, right? We're singing songs about an instrument of execution. It's become the source of our joy. And this is because Jesus' death was necessary for our sins to be paid for and forgiven. Without the death of Jesus, there can be no life for mankind. The sorrow of death was necessary, but also short-lived because in a little while, only three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead and the disciples' sobbing would turn into victorious shouting and their crying into ecstatic cheering. And this is why the apostles in Acts 5 can rejoice after being beaten because they know That victory is theirs in Jesus, and the battle is already won. And this is why Paul can can describe himself to the Corinthian church as a servant of Christ who is sorrowful, but always rejoicing. I love that about the Christian faith. It doesn't ignore the reality of pain, of suffering, of hard times, of sorrow, of grief. It doesn't ignore it, but it gives us something that uh, causes it to... Be, to, to fade away. It gives us a joy that just causes it to, to fade in comparison. And this is why Paul can write from prison to the Philippian church that we should rejoice always. Rejoice always. And so now, notice how Jesus' resurrection 
gives these disciples and us a new perspective on his death. The world was right. The cross was a victory, but their rejoicing was premature because it wasn't their victory. It was Jesus' victory, and it's our victory. Now, the next place we see Jesus' victory bringing joy is in verse 22. Indestructible joy. By faith in Jesus, we are united to him in his victory. Again, it's our victory. So we can face the most severe trials this world can throw at us, knowing that nothing can threaten or take away the victory that we have in Christ. No amount of torture or persecution will change this. The world puts their hopes in things like relationships and careers and comfort and security and health. But every single one of these things can be taken from you. Do you see how fragile a joy these things offer? The devil wants nothing more than to steal your joy. It's like placing your life savings in this delicate porcelain piggy bank and leaving it in some sketchy part of Newburgh with a hammer next to it and a sign that says, super valuable, don't touch. You'd be a fool to think it's safe. But if your joy is in Jesus and his victory over death that is yours too by faith, then we trade in our piggy banks for Fort Knox and the devil gets a plastic spoon instead of a hammer and you'd be foolish to think that he could ever take it from you. What could he possibly do to steal the disciples' joy? Maybe he could have a close friend betray them or afflict them with relentless persecution and even death. But even these attempts to rob us of our joy will be futile because the disciples will know in, in just a few hours that Jesus took these very things and used them to bring about the disciples' joy. Hear me. If your joy is found in Jesus, then you have nothing to truly Fear, because nothing this world can throw at you will ever threaten it. Next, Jesus' victory gives us joy for the asking. The disciples of Jesus have asked him many questions and have enjoyed the support of his physical presence among them. But the point Jesus makes here in verses 22 and 23 is that soon they will not have him around physically ask questions of anymore. Instead, whatever they ask the Father in Jesus' name will be given to them that their joy may be full. Let's unpack this a bit. This means two things. First, praying in Jesus' name means approaching the Father on the basis of Jesus' merit, not your own. It's Jesus' victory on the cross that cleanses us and makes us worthy to approach the throne of God, blameless and without fault. We must never presume that we can approach God thinking that there is some quality about us or some good thing that we have done to earn his favor. Or on the reverse side of this, 
we should never let anything keep us from entering the throne room of God because we think that there might be something that we've done that has uh, disqualified us in some way uh, if we've put our trust in Jesus. Just think about how amazing this is. Verse 26 tells us that Jesus isn't even a middleman. He's not one who will be the courier that brings our requests to God and and relays his answer back to us. He's not a middleman. We have direct access to the Father. Just just think about this. As, As sinful as we are, Jesus' victory on the cross gives us direct access to the Father. Sadly, many of our prayer lives don't correspond to this reality. It's as if someone gave you the keys to a brand new Ferrari and you never open the door and turn it on or take it for a drive. But Jesus has won for us and given us the keys to the throne room of heaven itself. May we all be convicted to make better use of this privilege. May we be driven that much more to our knees in prayer, knowing that we have direct access to the Father. The second thing prayer in Jesus' name means is that we must pray in alignment with his character and with his desires. This means that we are to ask for the things that Jesus would want, not for our spontaneous worldly comforts. Jesus doesn't, listen, (laughs) Jesus doesn't care about your comfort as the world defines it. Remember, he has just promised them that the disciples would be cast out, hated, and even killed for following him. Jesus died and rose again to advance his kingdom, not yours. And this is how Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we know? How do we know what Jesus' character is and what he desires that we're to ask him for these things? Well, here's really good news. He's written it down for us in something called the Bible, right? And it has, it, it tells us of his character that the person of Jesus Christ has revealed perfectly the, son, the, the Father to us, right? And it's been written down and recorded. So we know what he wants, right? If you've ever thought, wow, God's will is some kind of mysterious thing. I need to look for signs in the sky or something. No, get your head out of the clouds and look in the scriptures because his will is right there written down for you. And we can pray these things and ask the Lord for these things. Remember back to Jesus' teaching about the vine and the branches in chapter 15? In verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's because as we abide in the vine and we look more and more like Jesus, and we begin to want more and more the things that Jesus wants, we'll ask for those things and he'll give us these things that we ask for because they're the things that Jesus wants. This should drive us to our Bibles to learn as much as we can about Christ's character so that we we can pray more powerful prayers that we'll actually see answered. 
And this will fill us with joy as his his desires become our desires and we see these prayers answered. We'll rejoice as he supplies the need through Jesus' victory. Joy comes as we ask Jesus to help us, giving us all that we need to fulfill the mission he's given us. And prayer is, is the power to do what he's called us to do. It's the engine Lord, keep us from from doing ministry in our own strength. It's like driving a car with no gas. The next thing Jesus' victory on the cross gives us is joyful awareness of the Father's love for us. Look at verse 27. Jesus reminds us here that the reason we have such direct access to the Father is not because Jesus has won over his begrudging father, but because the father loves us. He actually loves us. He loves those who believe. Remember that it's God who so loved the world, that he gave his only son. And it's those who believe the gospel that the father loves. Look at verse 28. Here we see such a beautiful, simple Uh, explanation of the gospel, uh, Jesus, or a summary of the gospel, Jesus came from the Father into the world. Here we have the incarnation. Uh, And then Jesus became the Savior that we need when he victoriously left this world, going back to the Father by way of the cross and the empty tomb. Now he says, if you believe this, know that the Father loves you and hears your prayers. Assurance of his love will always lead you to greater joy. We need to remind ourselves of this constantly, daily. We need to be in the word and be reminded of of these gospel, precious gospel truths. The last thing here we see is joyful presence. In verses 29 to 30, Jesus' disciples speak better than they knew and they severely overestimated their commitment to him. And so Jesus reveals that in a short time, they will all scatter. They will all abandon him. And this shows us that even the best disciples can be fickle. So how is it that when the going gets tough, we can find strength to be faithful even when those around us are falling away. Well, Jesus shows us at the end of verse 32, here's how he he does it. Even though all of his friends will desert him, his father will not. He tells his disciples in verse 33 that he he says these these things to him so that in him they may have peace. In other words, just as the Father remained with Jesus when his friends deserted him and the world around him was coming undone, in the same way, when we are in Christ, we will have peace knowing that Jesus is with us. When we feel abandoned, when we feel betrayed, and we feel all alone for following him in this world, Jesus promises that in this world you will have tribulation, but In him we have peace and don't lose heart because Jesus has overcome the world. 
The decisive battle has been fought and won. And this is how he loved us. And we abide in this love, as we're told in John 15, by constantly reminding ourselves of Christ's victory over the world by his dying and rising again to pay for our sin, to give us life and to forgive us. We need to be reminded of that. That's the love that we need to abide in and and drink deeply from daily. And with this perspective, we're like trees with deep roots that tap into this bottomless, underground reservoir of gospel nourishment. And so when the circumstances of the world around us pummel us above the ground, we can be sorrowful but rejoicing because our roots are drinking deep into that bottomless reservoir, being reminded daily that Christ died and rose again to secure our ultimate victory and he is with us. And no matter the battering we take above the soil, no matter how nicked up we get or how many leaves get stripped off our branches by the world, we continue to believe because Christ has overcome the world. And in him, we have peace that fuels our joy and rises above the circumstances of this life. This is gospel perspective a victorious joy in Jesus amidst the tribulation of this world. May you know this joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us everything we need to walk through the tribulation of this world. We thank you that when, when the world beats on us, when we're persecuted, when we're looked down upon and mistreated, we thank you that we have roots that go deep down into that bottomless reservoir of gospel truth, that Jesus has won the victory, that he loves us, has given us life by his life, death, and resurrection. We have forgiveness of sins and eternal life and nothing can take that from us. Nothing this world can do to us will ever snatch that joy away from us. So Father, help us. Keep us near the cross. Keep us near that very thing that has been transformed into our joy so that while at times in this life we may be sorrowful, we will ever be rejoicing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.